church service or some other meeting where uh, the speaker said something like this. I was all prepared to speak to you today about thus and so. But I really feel the Holy Spirit is telling me to. I don't know if you find yourself in a place like that, how you react. I'll tell you how I react. My, my initial reaction is always, oh no, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's you. I'd much rather you spoke what you were planning to do because it was probably likely to be much better than whatever you're going to say right now. I'm not saying that reaction is right, but that's how I usually find myself reacting. But today in our next last but one stop on Highway 27, we've actually come to a book in the New Testament where the writer actually opens it that way. Now, because he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, rather than react skeptically, we can kind of sit up and take notice and say, wow, this is really important. Jude writes this in his opening words, verse 3. <coughs> Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for and trusted to the saints. So he, he began by intending to write to them some reflective document about our faith in Jesus Christ. But instead he feels constrained to call them to battle, to resist <coughs> and, and attack upon the church because he wants them to contend for the faith that was entrusted to them. Now, what was the particular nature of the, of the attack? <clears throat> In verse 4 he says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you another group of these traveling teachers. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So the particular error or the danger was to use God's grace, which was intended as a means to provide forgiveness for sin, and use it as a means for presumption and uh, casualness when it comes to our walk with God. And in this particular case, they changed the grace of God into license. So rather than dealing with sin that had already been committed by the mercy and the grace of God, they were presuming upon that grace in advance, in order to sin with impunity. And he said that, in effect, is denying the fact that Jesus Christ is our sovereign and our Lord. The, the kind of formal word for this, by the way, is antinomianism. The word nomos in Greek is the word for law, and anti, of course, is anti-law. So antinomianism is basically that <coughs> which is contrary or against God's law. Now, you want how to remember the book of Jude? Here it is. You know these two guys are fighting and obviously it's Judo. Okay? So think of Judo and remember the word Jude. And what are they fighting for? They're fighting for a cup called faith. It is fighting for the faith or contending for the faith. So that is the theme of the book of Jude. Fighting or contending for the faith. Now I want to walk you through the single the chapter. It's only one chapter so there isn't any uh, reading guide. But let me just walk you through the approach that Jude takes in inviting the church to fight against this particular uh, dangerous teaching. And he begins by reminding them of God's judgment of antinomianism in the past. <coughs> he says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. So he first of all points out to them the fact that, look, grace, even amazing grace, is no protection against the judgment of God 
when the lifestyle is one of deliberate, contemptuous and casual sinning in the name of grace. And so he says they have, this kind of thing has been dealt with very severely by God in the past. And then he brings it down to the present and he said the, today's antinomians are no different and they face the same judgment. He goes on then to give us a little bit of a clue as to what is the underlying thinking or the root cause behind their antinomianism. And there are two very interesting clues given to us in, in uh, Jude. First of all, in verse 10, he says, These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. And later in verse 19, he says, These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Holy Spirit. So you see that the underlying problem, that, that which kind of led to this kind of antinomial thinking and behavior was a way of responding instinctively rather than through the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. It is that which instinctively seems right as opposed to that which has been molded and shaped in our thinking by the Holy Spirit. So this contrast between instinctual thinking and spirit-guided thinking seems to be at the heart of it. And he goes on to give three examples from the Old Testament uh, to just to show us how instinctive thinking can work. Uh, woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Cain, Balaam, and Korah are used as three examples of this kind of instinctive thinking. And these details are there in your study guide. Let me just kind of quickly touch on them. Cain, some of you may remember, the brother of Abel, Genesis chapter 4, and they have both come with offerings to God. Abel comes with sheep, but Cain decides, I'm not going to bring any animals. I'm just going to bring the produce of my soil. Cain's thinking was very instinctive. He said, Abel is a shepherd. It makes sense for him to bring sheep. I am a farmer. Therefore, it makes more sense for me to bring what? Produce. Makes sense to me. Doesn't matter that God has said I need animals. I think I'll do what is sensible to me. And you know the consequence. His offerings were rejected. There's an example of instinctual thinking. Balaam, on the other hand, you'll read about him in Numbers chapter 23 to 24. He was a man who was sort of a prophet of sorts. <coughs> and an eastern king named Balak wanted him to pronounce curses upon the people of Israel. Balaam should have known better, but he said what many of us say today, let me pray about it. And so he did, and God told him what he thought God was going to say. Don't do it, Balaam. You would think that was the end of the matter. But Balak offered him more money. And the Bible tells us that Balaam's real problem was greed. It doesn't give us a clue as to the instinctive thinking underneath. But something must have made him go back. Because he said, let me go and see what God will say again. Perhaps he reasoned that he could be used as an instrument of judgment upon the people of Israel. Maybe he reasoned that whatever money he could get, he could use some of it for God's work. Those are not very uncommon ways of thinking these days. So there's a second example of instinctive behavior. Korah, he along with three other community leaders, rebelled against Moses' leadership in the book of Numbers chapter 16. And basically he came to Moses and said, who made you above us? We're all equal with you. The instinctive thinking at that point was, we don't need to submit to authority. We're all human beings. We're all equal. And so equality is an instinctively upright thinking. And so you rebel against authority. Maybe Moses is on a power trip himself. Who knows God set Moses up against us. We're just as equal with God. Three examples of this kind of instinctual thinking. <coughs> he goes on then to denounce these people in very strong ways. He paints four powerful metaphors. He said, these men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. 
And then come the metaphors. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Notice how in each of these metaphors they subvert the very purposes that they were intended for. Shepherds are supposed to feed the sheep. These people were feeding themselves. Clouds were supposed to bring rain. These were clouds without rain. Autumn, autumn trees are supposed to produce fruit. These had no fruit. Stars were supposed not to wander, to give direction to sailors in the middle of the night. But these were wandering stars. So four powerful metaphors that he uses to show what this kind of antinomian teaching buttressed and produced by instinctive rather than Holy Spirit guided behavior does to the church. The effect that it has upon that, that bride that Sean was talking to us about. <coughs> so anyway, that's the um, situation. And paradoxically, Jude uses 19 verses out of 25 just to describe the problem. And so now he invites us to fight. You now you know your enemy, you know the attackers. How are we supposed to fight? Verses 20 to 23, he says, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, <coughs> keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt, snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So this is how they were to fight antinomian teachers. Not by rounding up a posse to drive these people out of the church. Not by backbiting them and starting another campaign against them. He said, no, you just live differently. The primary way in which you fight antinomianism is to live this way. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Rather than reject authority, learn from those who are in authority. Learn from your teachers. Grow in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit so that whatever is instinctual may be checked and refined and corrected by the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then keep yourself in the love of God. And be merciful. Let this love actually go out to some of these antinomians. Get close enough to them that you can have an influence on them without them influencing you. And then as you do, look forward to eternal life. This is how we are to live. And this is how we are to fight primarily the battle <coughs> against antinomianism. And finally he says, in all of this remember to trust God. Unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority to Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. So that's, the, in outline, the message of the book of Jude. The danger of antinomianism and how to live in a totally different way. I want to just take some of this and talk about where we are today. <coughs> what is Jude's message for us? Antinomianism today is as much a danger as it was then, although the forms are different. You see, precisely because we need to emphasize grace so much to counter the horrible, crippling disease of legalism. And I'm continually picking up the pieces of legalistic religion in my counseling and pastoral ministry. We need, we, need a, we need an emphasis on God's grace and the Father heart of God and the love of God. But, precisely because that is so needed and so appropriate, there is an inherent and an implicit danger that goes along with it. And that is of taking grace, even amazing grace, precisely because it is amazing. And use it either as a cover-up for presumptuous sinning at worst, or if not that, a fairly casual approach to God's call for us to grow in our Christian lives. And become casual and tolerant about all kinds of things in our life that shouldn't be tolerated. In the name of grace. And in many cases, 
the root cause is exactly the same instinctual thinking rather than spirit guided thinking instinctual thinking we see it in our children all the time what's wrong with this mom or dad they don't ask what's right <laughs> holy spirit guided thinking asks what's right with it instinctual thinking says what's wrong with it this makes sense to me it's intuitive nothing wrong with it obviously this is okay that's the kind of instinctual thinking that goes behind modern day casualness to presumptive sinning so what does jude have to say to us the very first thing jude says to us is that a good beginning does not guarantee a good finish look at verse 5 though you already know all this i want to remind you that the lord delivered his people out of egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe this is a very interesting and important statement because the deliverance of egypt out of egypt uh, uh, god's people out of egypt is used as a paradigm in scripture of jesus saving us from our sins and so he says hey everybody came out of egypt everybody didn't end up in the promised land a good beginning does not guarantee a good finish now you see, and you know sometimes i hear statements at certain funerals on occasion of, of some loved one who died and they say oh yeah you know what he hasn't darkened the doors of a church for 40 years but but 42 years ago at a billy graham crusade he kind of accepted jesus into his heart oh, i'm so glad that he made that decision i am afraid jude would be of no comfort to you if he showed up at that funeral Oh, you say, well, what about assurance? Do we not have assurance? Do we not sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine? Yes, we do. But listen to this, folks. The only way we are assured that a good beginning will lead to a good ending is that we are moving towards that ending. My friend Mike Wilkins, pastor at West London Alliance Church, he's a long-distance runner. And he once gave me an analogy that really helped me. He said, sometimes when I'm doing my training runs, he said, I'll run past some store windows. He says, he says if I stop, if I stop and begin to look at my reflection in the store window, All I know is I'm dressed like a runner. I have no assurance that I'm a runner. He said, but if I look in that store window while I am running, (laughs) then I not only have assurance that I'm dressed like a runner, I have assurance that I am a runner actually because I'm in motion. I think he's right on. Jonathan Edwards used to say, the promises of God are never given so that we in a state of disobedience can assure ourselves that everything is okay with us. The promises of God are never given so that we in a state of disobedience can comfort ourselves that everything is okay. No, the promises of God are given to keep us moving from a good beginning towards a good ending. So what does that moving look like? What are some components of moving? And As I got to this part, I realized what an appropriate message Jude was for the beginning of the new year. Because this is a fresh uh, commitment for us to be able to say, hey, we want to keep, we want to be among those who are running. We want to be among those who are moving. first thing he says is build yourselves up in your most holy faith or the most holy faith he's not saying build yourselves up in faith as if he wants us to whip up ourselves into some kind of positive feeling he says build yourselves up in the faith he began by saying contend for the faith this faith is something that has certain substance to it when we became Christians when we became followers of Jesus Christ there was entrusted to us a, 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 a a mold, a form, substantive doctrine about Jesus and about all that we have in Christ. And when Paul was writing to Timothy, he said, this deposit of faith is so valuable, make sure you pass it on. Jude is saying it's so valuable, make sure you grow in it. So, this is, this is a very concrete call for us to get a better handle on the substance of our faith. What is it that we, in other words, it's the scriptures. <coughs> for, for therein is our faith revealed for us. We've just almost finished Highway 27. And in the past year, 
week after week after week, you've been given an introduction to the essence of one of the books of the New Testament and a study guide. And while I never completed the series on the Old Testament, 25 out of the 39 books of the Old Testament are completed. So basically, as of next week, you will have in your library 52 tapes, if you want them. One book, one sermon on each of the major books of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. What if during the 52 weeks of this year you decide, you know what, I'll just take half an hour each day to listen to one of those, each week, half an hour each week to listen to one of those sermons. And maybe take another hour sometime during the week to review the study guide. That's an hour and a half a week. That's pretty manageable because most people watch more TV than that in one day. What if you were to redeem an hour and a half a week? You know, by the end of this year, you'll have reviewed almost the entire Bible. And get a good, firm graph. That's a good beginning step. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't even have to take the courses at CTS, although for some of us that's a great idea. (coughs) But I want to encourage you. I want to put this as a challenge before you. And of course, every year I, I repeat this exhortation to read through the scriptures in the coming year. Those are some of the ways in which you can build yourselves up in the faith. <coughs> then secondly, he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, this doesn't mean praying in tongues. Paul uses a separate phrase that called praying with the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Spirit, he tells us what it means in Ephesians. When he says in chapter 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit. Well, you pray in the Spirit using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's how you pray in the Spirit. All this study that comes from the first step, this building ourselves up in the the most holy faith, (coughs) that kind of study has one primary purpose to it, not the only purpose, it has one primary purpose to it, and that is to provide fuel for communion with God. All of Scripture has a dominant primary purpose behind it, and it's not information. The primary purpose behind it is transformation through relationships. And God reveals his word to us so that just like when a human being speaks to us, what do we do? We speak back to them. We speak back to humans who speak to us shaped by what we just heard. If they ask us how are we feeling, we say not too good. If they ask us how are you feeling, you don't say it's 85 degrees outside in response. You respond on the basis of what they said to you. That's why God speaks to us. He wants us to respond on the basis of what he said to us. So praying in the Holy Spirit is take the sword of the Spirit, which we've studied, which we've built ourselves up in, and use it to fuel our communion with God. <coughs> then thirdly, keep yourself in God's love. We've been learning all about heart-to-heart relationships. Letting that love of God flow to one another. One John taught us, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brothers? And so forging some kind of community this year. And remember, those are the three things that keep coming up all the time, don't they? God's word, prayer, and community. Maybe, maybe this year some of you need to say, you know what, I've never really entered into a kind of a heart-to-heart relationship with anybody. Never allowed anybody to ask me questions about my spiritual life. Maybe you want to do that one-on-one. Maybe you want to do it in a small group. However, but keep yourself in the love of God. And fourthly, we are told to be merciful. <coughs> merciful to those who are antinomians. You know what? Most, most people today who are outside of the kingdom of God are antinomians in the sense that they don't have a law outside of themselves. They may not always be hostile. They may be clean living people, but they have no law outside of themselves. That's essentially antinomianism. And Paul, Jude says, be merciful to them. Let the love of God flow out to them as well. Remember these verses. To those who doubt, be merciful. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. <coughs> it struck me. 
Yes, we are to live like this. We are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. That's how we resist antinomianism. Yes, we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. And yes, we are to have Christian community. But it doesn't mean you isolate yourself from the antinomians. How do I know that? Paul says, Jude says, be afraid lest you get contaminated. Tell me something, folks. Only those who get close enough to people are have to be afraid of being contaminated. If you stay shuttled away in your isolated Christian communities, you don't have to be afraid of being contaminated. This, this verse implies that we need to get close enough to people who are antinomians that there's at least a possibility of being contaminated. And then he says, but if you live like this, if you build yourself up in the most holy faith, if you pray in the Holy Spirit of God, if you're connected in Christian community, then you can dare to get close to antinomians without being burnt by them. And instead begin to influence. A very modest illustration of Anav Sham's permission to share this. Shortly before our Christmas uh, banquet this time, um, Sham was having her hair done and... Uh, you know, hairdressers always have captive audiences. So this man was waxing eloquent and talking about a whole lot of things. And in the process, talked fairly freely about his past marriages and what had happened to bring them apart. And then went on to boast. I mean, literally boast about how he had used all kinds of devious schemes and means to cheat his wife out of anything that was due her. Just a basic vindictiveness and a rather shameful way of behaving was all being spilled out. And of course, you know my wife, she was getting more and more upset with all of this. And she was saying, why should I? She had been thinking about inviting him to the Christmas banquet. And she said, why should I bother with this individual who, who believes in treating people in this way, especially wives? Anyway, then, you know, because she is the woman who prays and she is the woman whose mind is shaped with the word of God. She said, well, I will invite him anyway. So the fact of the matter is the man came. He enjoyed himself. He filled out the card at the end and said, I want to know more about a personal relationship with Christ. And he announced to everybody at the table, see you next year. Now, the fact is, the result is not what I'm talking about. The fact that Sham would go ahead and transcend that initial reticence and reluctance to get close enough to say, come anyway. Come soiled as you are into the midst of our community. That's the kind of thing that Jude is talking about. <coughs> and finally... He says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Why do we need mercy? Uh, and how does mercy fit into this picture? A couple of ways came to my mind. First of all, just because we are among those who are moving, just because we are running, just because we are not interested in presumption or casual sinning, doesn't mean we won't fail. <laughs> just because we are aware of the danger of instinctive thinking, doesn't mean we won't do it sometime. We can fail. And when we fail, we need mercy. We, need, we continue running, trusting in the mercy of God when we fail. Appealing to the mercy of God when we have failed is not presumption. That's how we are intended. That's amazing grace. That's the proper use of grace. Presumptive grace presumes upon grace before as a confidence for sinning. Amazing grace simply says, Lord, that's not what I want to do, but I've fallen again. In the Olympics, if you fall in a race, you're disqualified like our hurdler was this past Olympics. But in this race that we are running from the beginning to the end, those who fall are not disqualified. They just get up and continue running again. And so we need the mercy of God to bring us to eternal life. But it says more than that. It, it talks about what we are focusing on. In this running, yes, we cast an occasional look backward at antinomianism and what awaits them. And we don't want to have anything to do with that. But most of the time we keep our eyes fixed ahead at what is awaiting us. This eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not just heaven. Jesus says it begins right now. What's that saying? It's saying to us that we run the race and we live like this. 
We put in the effort to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. We learn to pray in the Holy Spirit of God. We keep ourselves in the love of God. We try to be merciful to those who are outside. Not because we are paying back a debt to Christ for his great salvation. Not even because we want to show him how thankful we are. Although gratitude is a powerful fuel for for, uh, worship, not obedience. No, no, no. We do all of this because we are looking forward to even more grace, even more rewards. Because we dare to believe that if we run like this and live like this, Jesus Christ and our knowledge of him, which is the essence of eternal life, will bring us more joy and greater reward and more satisfaction than any antinomial instinctive behavior can ever have given to us. And so in those ways we look forward, waiting for the mercy. Those who wait look forward, they don't look backward. Now, now because these are exhortations, there is one other danger that we might fall into. And that is the danger of thinking that it all depends upon us. And so Jude anchors these five exhortations in a beginning and an ending verse that focuses on God's power to keep us. So what is our confidence as we keep moving? Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. (laughs) He begins with an opening statement about the power of Christ to keep us. And then he finishes by the power of God to keep us from falling. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. What, What a beautiful double assurance at either end that these exhortations come in the middle. You see, the reality and the danger of antinomianism is no reason to reject the sovereignty of God's power to keep us. These are not opposing doctrines. Think about it carefully and you will realize the truth of what I'm about to say. It is only those who lose a clear sight of the sovereignty of God that are likely to fall, are more likely to fall. It is those who stop focusing on God's glory and begin to focus on man's glory and make much of human abilities that are likely to be utterly disappointed and then fall away. No, no, no. It is an increasing clear vision of God, His glory and His greatness that will actually increase our resolve to keep running. That's not instinctive thinking, folks. Instinctive thinking says, oh, if I trust in God's ability to keep me, then I'll become lax. I have to believe it's all up to me, otherwise I'll stop making the effort. That instinctual thinking. And you will fail. Holy Spirit thinking says, no, God is great, God is able, so you will make the effort to keep running. (coughs) So let me add that very last statement. Worship is glory, power, majesty and authority. So that you can be confident that as you run, it is His power to keep you. New Year's, of course, you know, is a time for resolutions. And yesterday in the newspaper, Star, there was an article on, on New Year's resolutions. And the, funnily enough, the title was Promises You Can Keep. <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 it's Promises Christ Will Keep that are going to shape my resolutions. And he went on to make the point that 75% of Canadians will make New Year's resolutions. Only 5% of them will succeed even for a few weeks. And then he went on to give two reasons for it. He said the reasons are resolutions are vague and are not uh, specific. Well, I trust that Jude has left you with something that is neither vague nor non-specific. There are five very specific things. There's a, sorry, vague and not have a plan is what he meant. Okay. They're not vague. These are very specific. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Be merciful and worship. What's vague about those five plans? 
And as for specificity, I've given you some examples. I've given you some specific suggestions as far as the first one is concerned. I've given you some specific suggestions as far as the third one is concerned. I've given a little brief exercise in the study guide to make the others more specific. And as far as the second one is concerned, we're going to start tonight, solemn assembly. Why? Because everything depends on him. If we're going to run like this, Jude says he is able to keep, so let's call out to him. That's why the first week of every year we cancel every program in the church. Because programs aren't going to make us run like this. But Jesus will. (laughs) The Holy Spirit will. Instinctive thinking will be changed into Holy Spirit guided thinking during this week. And so you can learn to immediately put into practice the second step. Praying in the Holy Spirit this year. And tonight's prayer time as we begin, we will actually be using the book of Jude to shape some of our prayers. We'll also be taking one unit to pray for the tsunami situation. Buzz Maxi from our own church has been asked and is now right now in Ake province, the northern part of Sumatra, uh, working both with the Alliance and with uh, Samaritan's Purse. And Myrna has given us some very specific prayer requests. So, you know, we can connect personally into this big, massive disaster that leaves us so numb. How do you connect with 150,000 people who are dead in 12 countries that you normally know nothing about? We can connect through Buzz Maxi. We can connect through Myrna Maxi. People that we know in places that we know. And so we'll be praying about that as well tonight. So I'd invite you to come. Uh, I hope you picked out that little brochure you had two, three weeks ago. I hope you marked out the dates you're going to come. And my encouragement to all of you is to stretch yourself a little bit more. Stretch yourself. If you've never participated, come one day. If you've come one day, come more. If you've come all week, come again. And if you've never considered fasting during this time in one way or another, and there are many ways you can fast. You can fast food, fast television, fast sleep, any legitimate pleasures. Instinctively, by the way, notice your instinct will go into overdrive this week. Your stomachs will hurt, you will have headaches, you'll be irritated, there'll be conflicts at home. There'll be 500 different instinctual reasons why you will not pray this week. Be warned right now and allow the Holy Spirit of God to change those instincts and say, no, 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 I want to think spirit-given thoughts this week. Join us as we pray together. And I trust that this year, this will be a year when these will be the resolutions that will mark you. And not 75%, but 100% of you will make these resolutions. And not 5%, but 100% of you will be successful. And not just for five weeks, but for 52 weeks of the year. That is my prayer. That's my desire. And that is Jude's call to us to contend for the most holy faith. In one of his latest books, John Piper said this, he said, uh, we will worship Jesus Christ to the extent that we value him. We will value him to the extent that we savor him. And we will savor him to the extent that we see him. And we just finished singing that. If we could see how much your worth, your power, your love, and your endless worth. And that's my blessing for you this coming year. That this will be a year when you and I, along with you, we will just see Jesus a little bit more clearly than we've known him so far. Seeing him that we might taste him and savor him. Savoring him that we might value him. And valuing him that we might worship him. And worshiping him that we might proclaim him. Go in Jesus' name.